Today we're going to be in Acts 13, starting with verse 14. The last time we were in Acts, we spoke about yet another counterfeit of God in the form of Elimus. And we also saw the start of Paul's first missionary journey. Today we're going to see Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch as opposed to Syrian Antioch. Verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So they're not in Cyprus anymore. We covered the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean the last time, but they're in Pisidian Antioch in Asia Minor, which today is also known as modern-day Turkey. Uh, Pisidian Antioch was a Roman colony with a very diverse population. Paul preached to the Gentiles, but he often, when he came into the new area, he went to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. Now, these local synagogues had customs. One was they would often read from the Law and the Prophets, and they would also invite itinerant rabbis to speak. So that was a perfect opportunity for Paul to seize on. And I think about opportunists. You ever hear of the word opportunist? That usually has a negative connotation. Well, there's many opportunists in the world. They're waiting to scam you. They're waiting to prey on the elderly. They're waiting to somehow separate you from your money. But we as God's people should hit that from the other end as an opportunity There's enough negativity, there's enough sin in the world. All you have to do is read the news in the morning to see that. But we as God's people should seize on opportunities to bless people. Seize on the opportunity to open your mouth and speak for God. Everybody here knows something about the Bible, knows something about Jesus. And we often sell ourselves short and say, but how could God use me? I I don't really know much. We all know something, and God can use the little bit that you know with the power of the Holy Spirit for an opportunity to bless people and speak for God. We also see Paul's flexibility. Paul could change course on a moment's notice. Whatever God had for Paul, he was there. Chuck Smith, I believe, coined the phrase, he said, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. How do we measure up to that in flexibility? How often are we willing to break our schedules to do the Lord's work? And often we think, well, I have a a tight schedule. I have two jobs. But there's often times where God reroutes me, whether it's the guy at the gas station or the girl uh, bagging my groceries or somebody at the drive-thru when I'm getting something to eat, um, when I should be eating health food. But either way, God will use me and he'll break my schedule and set aside some time for me to minister to somebody who comes out of the blue. Sometimes I'm, I'm talking to my wife and she's going out for a few things at the store and some time passes and I call her on the cell phone. I'm like, where are you? She goes, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. So she calls me back and she's like, I had a really great opportunity to, to talk to somebody in the aisle in the supermarket. So we need to be open to those opportunities that the Lord has for us. And verse 15, he says, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on the uh, synagogue leader. Alternate translation, a word of encouragement. In the Greek, the word is paraklesis. Now, if you've been at Calvary Chapel or any Calvary long enough, 
That should sound familiar to you. It's a variation of the Greek word used for the Holy Spirit, parakletos, which means, as trans- translated, the Holy Spirit is the intercessor, the consoler, or the comforter. And that's one of the Holy Spirit's job, as he is parakletos, called alongside of us. He's a consoler, he's an intercessor, and he's a comforter, and he's an encourager. And the question is, what better message of encouragement as what we see Paul is leading up to in the synagogue. He's leading up to the gospel message. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, you have the title as pastor, and you seem like a nice guy, Joe, and, you know, you've been a police officer for 16 years in the community, and people seem to like you. God's probably pleased with you. Well, I got news for you. I'm not stupid, and I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to stand before God without the blood of Jesus. I'm just not doing it. It's not a smart thing for me to do. So I'm blessed in this message of encouragement that Paul shares with his, his brethren in the synagogue. He tells them, you know, Jesus Christ, he came in the form of a man, God in the flesh. He was born a, a miraculous birth, lived a sinless life. He taught the teachings were from the mouth of God, right? And he died a substitutionary death on the cross. And when he shed his blood, it was for the remission of our sins and The seal of all that authenticity is the fact that he, in three days, rose from the dead. He had a a ministry on earth for 40 days, and then he was seated at the right hand of the Father. That, to me, is the best news that anybody could ever hear. So here, we're going to open up to Paul's speech. Verse 17. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, Paul's form of address here is known as historical retrospect. We saw this before in the book of Acts when we covered it. In chapter 2, we saw Peter do this, kind of go into this historical retrospect. In chapter 7, we saw it with Stephen before he was martyred. Paul moves from Moses in the Exodus to King David in this particular block. We see the covenant, God's covenant with his people and promises made. But again, not completely fulfilled until Messiah's substitutionary death and subsequent resurrection. In verse 18, he says, he put up with their ways. God didn't completely annihilate the people, but he often judged them and correct them. And that should give us encouragement. Because God puts up with our ways too. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We follow the Bible. And we still do stupid things. We still sin. We still do things that are self-centered and selfish. And the encouraging thing is that God puts up with, he puts up with me. And that's a great thing. So does my wife. That's really great. Verse 19. He speaks about uh, how God destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. And gave the children of Israel their land by allotment. Now, we covered this on Wednesday nights. I covered the uh, conquering and subsequent populating of the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Uh, 
my method is I like to teach the New Testament on Sunday and for now anyway, and the Old Testament on Wednesday. So it actually keeps me sharp to be in both books. And it's good to get a well-rounded picture of the whole Bible. Verse 20. And then it says he gave them the judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, in January, I'm going to start the book of Judges on uh, Wednesday nights. And Samuel here was a transitional figure between the judges and the prophets as he fulfilled both offices. Verse 21. And afterwards, they asked for a king, the children of Israel. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. What we see is the rejection of God's rule in exchange for man's rule. And that was in the form, if you remember, 1 Samuel 8, in the form of King Saul's monarchy. The people wanted a king. The other nations have a king. We want a king. Although God wanted to rule them directly, he gave them what they had asked for. Sadly, God's people have a history of rejecting his ways and believing it's okay. But it's no different today. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. God has a way for every man and every woman here. And he often, through his word, through prayer, he will give us the idea of what he wants us to do, what his, his role for us is. But oftentimes we would rather go our way instead of his way. And that's what it is when you, you, you're, we're still tied to this flesh. We're still tied to sin. And God has his way, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we so desire to do God's, what he wants us to do, but sometimes we go back and we do it our way. I believe it's in Romans 7, Paul says, I mean, we look at Paul as the icon of the Christian faith in a sense, and Paul says, the things that I want to do for God, I find out that I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do because they're sinful, I find out that I do them. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I love that part of scripture because... It encourages me when I read that, because we have that constant struggle with the flesh and the spirit. Again, historical retrospect, just to sum up this section. There's a flowing of the Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I was able to use it about two to three weeks ago. Uh, I met this couple. I met the guy for the first time. They have a young child. And, uh, you know, he, he just seemed something was, I just liked this, something about him, Right. And I was praying in my mind, I'm like, Lord, give me an opening. And finally, there was an opening. And we ended up sitting down for practically two, three hours. He asked me all these biblical questions. I brought them from the Old Testament, sort of like, like Paul did, through the New Testament, through the Messiah, through the substitutionary death, the death on the cross, the resurrection. And he was, you know, the whole time he's smiling and stuff. Oh, this is good stuff. Tell me more. And then at the end, I said, okay, now I put you in a very compromising position. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you don't act on this, and you die and you stand before the Lord. You can't go back and say, you know, I never heard that thing about Jesus. And he kind of, the smile ran away from his face. He's like, oh. I said, so, you know, this is something that you need to pray about because you, you, you know, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. So it was, it was neat. Okay, verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John the Baptist or John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, 
the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Paul shows in this covenant that God made with Israel, and a covenant, it's a big word for an agreement. God often made agreements with his people. One of, some of the agreements were, if you follow my ways uh, and you keep my commandments, all will go well with you. If you reject me and you follow false gods and pra- practice paganry, you know, things aren't going to go well for you in a nutshell. You're going to have a lot of hardships. And God's, God's, uh, he, he's a person of his word, and his words were fulfilled. But he was, uh, you see this promise of salvation happening. I just want you to turn, if you would, to Jeremiah 31, Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Now, in context, this prophet, this Old Testament prophet, revered prophet of the Jewish people, one of the largest uh, prophetic books of the Old Testament, okay, he is speaking to his people. God is speaking through Jeremiah to, to the Jewish people. And he is prophesying unto the future. Now let's follow what he says. Verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, before I move on, when God makes an agreement, God cannot lie. That's one of the things God cannot do. He cannot lie. So he made this agreement with the children of Israel, and he never breaks his agreement. But the children of Israel broke the covenant. So he had to make a new covenant. He says, verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What is he prophesying to? He's prophesying, number one, to the Holy Spirit. You won't have to get on your neighbor or your spouse or your your kid and say, Know the Lord, know the Lord. If the Holy Spirit is in them, they will be convicted. When I do something wrong, it bothers me. Sometimes I still make the choice to do something wrong, but it bothers me. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He also speaks about the the days of the forgiveness. He's prophesying unto the days of grace. So you have the Christ coming, the substitutionary death, grace being shown, the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit, where now, instead of, again, being held to that law, look at that. Did you see what that says? You will have God residing inside of you. That's pretty fantastic. All the way in the Old Testament. And this, of course, this section, going back to Acts, this section ends with the seal of salvation's authenticity, which is the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Because Jesus focused on the resurrection while he was alive. He said he was going to die a substitutionary death and then come back after three days. So 
The fact that he died on the cross wasn't enough. He had to come back from the dead. Otherwise, it negates everything he said, and it would make him a liar. Then his qualities of, of being divine would be, would be revocable. So he had to tell the truth on that. And Paul is showing his people that this salvation we missed. Our, my own people, we missed it. Verse 22 and 23. Now we're talking about uh, David here. It says, when he removed him, meaning Saul, he raised up David for them, to whom he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. Now, here he's making the connection between King David and Jesus, as the Messiah had to be in the Davidic bloodline. It, it, was, it was foretold in Scripture. The Messiah had to come through the line of David. And he says, from this man's seed. The word seed, I looked it up in the Greek, is spermatos, which is actually where we get the English word sperm. And you're seeing a physical connection from the, from the Messiah to uh, King David. The same word spermatos is used in Genesis 3.15. You may say, well, isn't that in Hebrew? In the Septuagint, which is a circa 2nd century B.C. translation of the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. So the same word is used there. Now, if you remember Genesis 3.15, those of you Bible students, you'll see that that was where, after the curse, the fall of man, God puts a curse on the man, the woman, and the serpent, which is a representation of, of Satan, okay? And what he shows is that God says in Genesis 3.15 that, that the serpent will bruise uh, your seed's heel, but you'll bruise the seed of the serpent's head. And what he's saying there is that the Messiah would be bruised temporarily, but Satan would be done in for good through the cross and you know, in the culmination of all things. So what you see really through that in a nutshell is that in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman... What you see is that you can trace Jesus' physical connection from Mary, okay, back to David in Luke's gospel and in chapter 3. And we covered that when we went through Luke. So you see the connection there that, that Paul is trying to make, and we can find it through the scripture. Verse 24 and 25. You know, I really love John the Baptist. There's something about this guy. He's a fiery preacher. He's, he's an honest guy. He doesn't take glory for himself. I just... You know, when we go through John, I, I just love this guy. It says, after John had first preached before his coming, meaning Jesus, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. God's true representatives will always acquiesce to Jesus and not try to take his glory. And you see that in John. I had permission to use this story. Um, recently, uh, one of my sergeants on the police department had come to me, and he said he was talking about a, a family, a couple, who had some run-ins with the police over the years. And, you know, they, they became saved, and they started reading the Bible, and, they, man, they were just on fire and doing a great thing. And I didn't ask them to do this, but they came into the station and they sat down with the sergeant and said, you know, we put you guys through a lot over the years, meaning the police. You never get this, right? And he was shocked. And they even wrote out a check and donated to the PBA. And again, I didn't ask him to do that. But the sergeant was blown away. And he said to me, boy, you really did a good work with that family. Now, my flesh wanted to take the glory, but I immediately cut myself off. And I said, you know what? It's not me because it isn't me. 
If I leave here tomorrow, somebody else could take my place as a pastor. As men and women of God, we're all expendable, and we have to look at ourselves like that. We're nothing. We're just instruments of God. And I said, Sarge, I said, Jesus is good for everybody, you, me, that family. I said, none of us are any different. Jesus works for all of us. So it was cool because it was a good opportunity to, to uh, talk to you know, my supervisor about that. Pastors and ecclesiastical leaders are only under shepherds, according to 1 Peter 5. Now, many try to elevate Peter and say he was the first pope and put him in a really high position. But out of Peter's own words in, in his works, First and Second Peter, he says in 1 Peter 5, that basically we're just under shepherds until the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, arrives. So we're kind of like temps right now until Jesus comes back. And like John the Baptist, we acquiesce to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. John the Baptist's message was repentance prior to salvation. Although many forget that there's still repentance after salvation as believers. Sometimes as believers we forget that message. That's not often preached in the church, repentance. But we need to repent. We, you know, on our journey as human beings, as, as we're being conformed into the image of Christ, we, it's a journey of repentance. It's a journey of saying, I'm sorry. It's a journey of changing direction from sinful ways to God's ways. That's what we do as people of God. Although that's a dying art in Western Christianity, all the psychologists will tell you that that's damaging to your self-esteem. You need to build yourself up. Don't we have enough of building ourselves up in our society? So self-centered. We're often too proud to admit fault. Let me just kind of prove my point. Be honest here. Raise your hand. How many people... Raise your hand. Feel comfortable after service that me and my elders take you in a room and tell you what's wrong with you and you need to repent. How many people really want to do that today after service? One person in the back, two. (laughs) Okay, proves my point. I don't want it either. But just like eating right and taking care of yourself, repentance is omitted in the American diet. You know, it's a different story in other countries. I love to hear stories about Christians and churches from other countries because they're just so much more humble. We're such a proud people in the West, aren't we? Verse 26. Paul says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Paul is saying to them, the Old Testament points out this resurrection and salvation, and we missed it. As a matter of fact, in the New Living Translation, it's more emphatic. He says, this salvation is for us, exclamation point. In other words, my brothers, don't let this slip by. This is too precious. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the Old Testament scripture that sins would be forgiven. And why wouldn't we as God's people take advantage of it? He's trying to, you know, really exhort them and encourage them. And verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them, meaning the prophecies, in condemning him, meaning Jesus. So the, the Messiah was right under their noses. The leaders and the dwellers of Jerusalem fulfilled the prophets in condemning the Messiah. And we see that, if you're taking notes, most of you know Isaiah 53, you know, the rejection of, of the Messiah, rejecting by his own people. They hated me without a cause. All the Old Testament pointing to what the Messiah would go through. So Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 35, and Psalm 69. And this is another place where God's sovereignty and man's free will meet again. God prophesied the Messiah's rejection 800 years prior, but wicked men still made the choice. 
free will is a very interesting subject along with the sovereignty of God. God controls everything, but at the same time, he gave us as human beings free will to make choices. So I would just say this. Some would use it as an, as an excuse to blame their sin on God. Well, God made me this way. Well, this is who I am. I can't change. Not true. That's a cop-out. Free will means we get to choose good or evil. We choose good or evil every day. God made me like this doesn't fly. The devil made me do it doesn't fly. Um, we live in a society that refuses to take responsibility for our actions. I actually watched a, um, a documentary on American prisons, and I did prison ministry. Um, I haven't done it in a while, but most of the time you go into the prisons and no, everybody there is innocent. <laughs> Nobody did it. They got the wrong person. Well, every, the jail is filled with the wrong people. Now, I'm sure there are some people who, you know, who it slipped through and it was a, a, a defect in the court system, but it's just funny how people say that. They always want to blame their parents, the police, the system, uh, you know, was, they weren't my drugs, their friends, whatever it is, okay? Always blaming somebody else. But I remember one woman who was in prison for robbery, armed robbery, and she just was so candid. She, you know, the camera came on her and she said, you know what, I'm here because I made poor choices. And, and it was so succinct, and I, I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. She, she's, she's, she's definitely in the first step to turning around and going into the right direction. She said, when I get out of here, I'm going to try to do a better job in not making those poor decisions. Verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. The message of salvation was missed by the Jewish people. Now, this was not uncommon as they often missed the messages of the prophets. Now, let me not say that because I don't want to come from a biased position. Let me go back to uh, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36, the historical books. Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, 36, a few verses. Let me read to you what the Jewish priest Ezra said about his own people. Second Chronicles 36:14. The priest says this. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, the messengers meaning the prophets. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Well, that's a sad sight. And then he talks about how the Chaldeans came and they, and they they uh, looted the house of God and took all the treasure, and then they burned the house of God to the ground. They broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They slaughtered the people. Because in God's eyes, he showed them grace and grace and grace and grace until the point where there was no remedy. Now he had to judge his own people. And in the New Testament, it says the same thing. Judgment starts with the house of God. If we think for a moment that we get a free ride because we became Christians and we can behave however we want, we want. We're wrong because judgment starts in the house of God. The Bible tells us that God loves us as his children and he will discipline us like a father disciplines his children. So we should not expect that we be, should become Christians and profane his name. We have to try to live consecrated and holy lives. 
So God brought salvation to Israel and he used this powerful preacher, John the Baptist, to put the fear of God into them, so to speak, and to cause them to repent prior to salvation brought by Jesus. Verse 29. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul specifically uses the word tree here. And we know that the cross was made, the Romans would take the tree and they would, you know, hew it out or do whatever and they would put the cross piece on there and they would erect it as a cross as a form of capital punishment. So basically it was a tree. Well, we call it a cross because it, you know, has that, that, that emblem there. Deuteronomy 21 in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there, all the way back in the Torah, in the law, Deuteronomy 21, 20 through through 23, God says that being hanged on a tree was for criminals. And furthermore, God cursed the one who was hanged on a tree. And we, when we went through the book of Joshua on Wednesday nights, we saw when the children of Israel would conquer, they would hang these people on the tree and then they would take them down. So one of the biggest stumbling blocks to a Jewish person was how could the Messiah be hanged on a tree? I don't get it. He's supposed to come as this powerful political military leader. How could he be hanged on a tree? And that was the stumbling block. But not only was it prophesied, specifically that he would be crucified, even before crucifixion came to that area. That's the beauty of prophecy. But there was meaning behind it. You see, when you really get deeper into it, you see that uh, Jesus was cursed while he was on that cross. And in a, in a moment's time, uh, God could, you know, could not look at him. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he took the sins of the world on his body. He was cursed so that we wouldn't have to be. And the more we appreciate that, and the more we understand that, the more we appreciate our salvation. Because everything that was done, again, look at the news, day after day after day, in our country, in other countries, just the filth that goes on in the world, every day, over thousands of years, multiply that. Jesus took the sins of all the world onto his body, on that tree, and he was cursed in that moment of time so that we could escape. Because people think, well, God's a loving God, he'll ignore the sin. No, God won't ignore the sin. God's a perfect God, and we're ruining this planet in a lot of ways, physically and through sin and through crime and through war. So why would God want us to come up there and ruin his, his heaven? It's like there goes the neighborhood. All those people are up here, and they're messing everything up like they did down there. No, God can't ignore sin. He, sin has to be judged. And the only way for us to escape the punishment of hell is that we believe on Jesus Christ who took the sins of the world on him for that moment and was cursed by God so that we wouldn't have to be. He took our place in judgment. That's why Jesus is the only way. It is what it is. So this section ends with really missing God's plan or pushing his plan aside because it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit a preconceived notion or an agenda. The people at the time were expecting something out of their Messiah, and that's why they rejected Jesus. Well, we don't like this. This is not the way it's supposed to go down. This is not, you know, we're supposed to destroy Rome here. This thing with the crucifixion, no, we're not having that. They had an agenda, a preconceived notion of what they wanted out of their Messiah. So the question is this then, and it's a question, were the Jews guilty of having God's word available, having prophecy and the prophets readily, readily available? and having everything at their fingertips, and then some willfully and some ignorantly rejecting God's purpose and commands because it didn't fit their agenda or what they were looking for? And we can chastise those people, can't we? Well, is it any different today? We as Christians have Bibles and commentaries and iPods and Greek and Hebrew and CDs and MP3s and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, 
for Christian study, right? We have all that stuff. But when it's time for correction or responsibility or rooting out sin, or when God's word comes in conflict with what we want, we sometimes push aside what we know because it doesn't suit our agenda. So who are we kidding as God's people now? It's easy to point the finger at the first century Jews as convenient villains, but we can be just as guilty of ignoring God's plan. I want to tell you um, something that I saw uh, Wednesday night, I believe it was, on MSNBC. And, uh, you know, I really don't watch TV that much, but all of a sudden it caught my eye and I, I watched it with my wife. And it was about a, a preacher, a young preacher who, in the Pentecostal movement, who was an up-and-coming great preacher, great eloquence and, and you know, articulate and the whole deal, new, new scripture. And he moved his way up the ranks, and he became a bishop over the years. Uh, he actually was at the White House. He was mentored by Oral Roberts uh, in, that, in that faith. And something happened in his life. It was a tragedy to him. He says that his grandparents had backslid and fallen into a, a sinful state. I mean, heavy sins that he named, and they died. Now, he was always taught that they probably went to hell. Do I know where his grandparents are? No, I don't even know his grandparents. So I'm not saying whether they did or they didn't. But in his mind, his grandparents were going to hell. For years, that, that didn't sit well with him. And he, uh, he struggled with that and struggled with that. And he tried to rectify it in his mind. So what he did was, he said that he was watching TV one day and, and a voice told him basically that there was no such thing as hell. Now, you know who that voice was. It certainly wasn't God. And what he did was he said, okay, there's no such thing as hell. And, and uh, he said he did some research and he pretty much explained away the doctrine of hell. Now, of course, the journalists don't do their homework and they let him get away with saying on TV, well, I've read the Greek and Hebrew and it doesn't substantiate the hell doctrine in the King James Version. Now, I'm, I'm rehabilitated. I used to yell and scream at the TV, but I don't do that anymore because it's a waste of time. But they let him put that out there and they never qualified it. I mean, we, we've up here talked about it. I've, I've actually read you the Greek in the lexicons and showed you where a lot of our words in the English, you know, lake of fire and all those things come from the actual Greek words. A poor, pyros, you know, pyrotechnic, all that kind of stuff. So that bothered me. Now, what he, so he explained the way hell, and then he said to the, the person who was interviewing him, he said, um, I'm at peace now because now God is likable to me. Now he's happy with God because he made God in his own image, explaining away hell. And that says a lot. He, he, I like God now. What you see is that his personal, it's like emotion-based theology. Well, I, I, there's something I don't like about God, so I want to change that so I could feel better about God. I got news for you. When I don't feel good or I lose a loved one, I'm not really happy with God's decisions either. But I don't have to be because I'm not God. He is. You deal with it. And knowing at the end of the day, at the end of the game, at the end of your life, all his decisions are going to be fair decisions, and we'll be at peace with all the decisions he made. I certainly wouldn't want to be in his position and run this earth, you know. I'm lucky I could run my checkbook. But the point is that uh, he had a, a, a personal agenda, and he, he changed God's word based on his agenda. So when we look at what Paul is saying, let's look at what he's saying as if he's speaking to us and not historical figures 2,000 years ago. Oh, that was a great story, Joe. See you next Sunday. No. That's a tragedy. Yes, the Jewish people changed what they thought about the, the, the Messiah because of their desires and their agendas. Yes, Christians today do the same thing. Based on what we like and what we don't like, we try to tweak God's word. So 
How often is it that we miss what God is saying to us personally because of our personal agendas, biases, or desires get in the way? What we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what can we root out of our hearts today that stands in opposition to God's word and God's plans? Let's think about that and let's pray.